there may be teardrops to shed so while there's moonlight and music and love and romance let's face the music and dance dance let's face the music and dance Hello, I'm Ryan Briegel, and you're listening to Let's Face the Music, a podcast exploring the stories behind the standards of the great American songbook. There may be teardrops to shed, so while there's moonlight and music and love Are you ready? Let's face the music. Today's song is Tea for Two. Music by Vincent Humans, words by Irving Caesar, and performed by Anita O'Day. Picture me upon your knee, tea for two and two for tea. Can't you see how happy we could be? There's nobody near us to see us or hear us No friends, relations, on weekend vacations We won't have it known We own a telephone This is Anita O'Day singing Tea for Two with Gene Krupa and his orchestra in 1946. Her version here is looser and has more swing than audiences were used to hearing for what was a typically straight-ahead 1920s pop song. But if people thought this was a modern take on an old Broadway hit, 12 years later, Anita O'Day would perform Tea for Two in a completely new way that no one had ever heard before, bringing her national attention and establishing her as one of the jazz scene's finest improvisational musicians. But sadly, As the decades progressed, a singer with amazing skills was not how Anita O'Day was usually remembered. This is a story about a woman who wanted to be a jazz singer and refused to let anything stop her. She started singing at the age of 12 for coins thrown on a dance floor. She just barely made enough money to pay the rent as a band singer, a canary, in the 40s. She had two bad marriages and was a heroin addict for 15 years. This is the introduction for Anita O'Day's interview on CBS's 60 Minutes in June of 1980. And yes, it is true she refused to let anything get in her way. But the things she might have preferred to be famous for, namely her musical skill, her rhythmic brilliance, the way she transcended jazz gender norms, those attributes were often overlooked for the more salacious details that the 60 Minutes intro pointed out. Most notably, her heroin habit. But this song that she would eventually elevate to wild jazz heights, Tea for Two, where did it come from? The song was written by Vincent Humans and Irving Caesar for a 1925 musical called No, No, Nanette. 
In the story, Nanette is a young heiress who dreams of being free from her guardians and her boyfriend, who seem to always tell her no. Tea for Two is sung by Nanette and her boyfriend Tom while they are fantasizing about their future married life together. Vincent Newmans claimed he had the melody of the song swimming in his head for years, and he presented the tune to lyricist Irving Caesar when the two needed a fantasy song for the musical score. Newmans demanded Caesar come up with some words quickly for the melody, so the lyric writer reportedly rattled off what he considered dummy lyrics in five minutes, intending to rewrite them later. But the next day, both songwriters looked at what they had and actually enjoyed the quaintness of Picture me upon your knee, and we will raise a family, a boy for you and a girl for me. Caesar is quoted as saying, Sometimes I write lousy, but always fast. The title Tea for Two is a phrase dating back to the 18th century. When a street vendor selling tea wanted to increase his sales, he would drop the price of a pot of tea from three pennies to two pennies by shouting Tea for Two. By the 19th century, the term Tea for Two was another way to say that a gentleman and a lady were courting, meeting in the afternoon for tea. The lyrics that harkened back to an earlier, simpler time did seem to be perfect, for the melody humans had written. This is one of the earliest recordings of Tea for Two by Marian Harris in 1924. Picture me upon your knee Just me for you and you for me Just me for you and you for me alone One musician who has great respect for for two, even today, is legendary Nashville jazz pianist B.G. Adair. Adair recorded the song with guitarist Jack Jezro in 2010, and she says one of the best things about the rather simple song structure is its versatility. It's a song that, uh, the way it's laid out, you can do a lot with it in terms of turning things around and adding extra chord changes in, in certain places. And... Uh, a lot of people play it in different ways, like modulating every eight bars and things like that. The 1925 musical was a hit, and T for Two was one of the standout songs from the score. Two film versions of No No Nanette were produced, one in 1930 and the other in 1940. But in 1950, film producer William Jacobs and director David Butler decided they wanted to use the songs and character names from No No Nanette, and also the idea of someone saying no to Nanette, but give the film an entirely brand new plotline. In an attempt to possibly fool the public into thinking this was just an updated version of the original hit musical, they titled the film after its most popular song, T for Two. And when casting the film, the producers felt the innocent lyrics and catchy melody of T for Two made the film a perfect vehicle for a relatively new singer and actress named Doris Day. It's a great feeling to suddenly find the clouds are silver-lined when the sun breaks through. It's a great feeling 
to walk down the street and see the folks you meet smiling back at you. Beachy Adair says that as a young girl growing up in a small Kentucky town, she would often bribe her mother with her good behavior so that she would be allowed to go see the newest films in her local theater. And Adair would go back the following day to see the same film again. She discovered so many jazz standards this way by seeing these film musicals repeatedly, many of them starring Doris Day. She's got a beautiful sound, and she seems really engaged in everything that she says in a song. Les Brown said about her, if you ever want to sell a song, get Doris Day to sing it for you. Because she has the lyric down, and she has the whole attitude of the song down, and she sings them like they're happening to her. Despite Doris Day's musical talent, her strong, clear voice, and her knack for really inhabiting a song, she ended up being best known for her virginal, girl-next-door image. Prudish, innocent, and a little helpless, which is strange since so many of her film roles were characters who were anything but helpless. In The Pajama Game from 1957, Doris Day plays a union worker in a pajama factory who fights for the rights of laborers. In Lover Come Back from 1961, Doris Day plays a strong-minded advertising executive. And in Pillow Talk from 1959, Doris Day plays a successful interior decorator who owns her own company. Pillow Talk, Pillow Talk, another night of hearing myself talk, 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 talk. These were spirited, independent women. Some might even say they exhibited an early version of 20th century feminism. And Doris Day's personal life behind the scenes was not exactly what you would call ordinary. As a child, she was a wonderful dancer, but her legs were injured in a car accident when she was 15, taking away any hope of a dance career. It was during the long recovery for her injury that she realized the joy of singing and the talent she had for it. She married when she was 19 years old, and when she told her husband she was pregnant, he beat her in hopes of forcing a miscarriage. However, the child, Terry, was born, and Day soon divorced her abusive husband. Her third husband, Marty Melcher, became her manager throughout her successful film career in the 1950s and 60s. But when he died in 1968, Day was shocked to learn that her husband had embezzled her personal savings of $20 million. He had also committed her to star in a CBS sitcom without her knowledge, a commitment she was now forced to fulfill, mainly to have money to live on. And then there was her connection to Charles Manson. Remember Doris Day's son, Terry? She gave Terry the last name of her embezzling third husband, and in the 1960s, Terry Melcher became a successful record producer, working with lots of rock groups, most notably The Birds and The Beach Boys. The Beach Boys drummer Dennis Wilson had befriended aspiring musician Charles Manson in 1968, and he had introduced Manson to Terry Melcher. Melcher visited Manson at the ranch where he and his followers lived, and Melcher expressed an interest in recording the songs Manson had written. The two men saw each other socially. And although Charles Manson had never been invited into Terry Melcher's Los Angeles house at 10,050 Cielo Drive, Manson knew where he lived. Dennis Wilson had dropped Terry Melcher off at his house once when Manson was in the car. 
Charles Manson kept pressing Terry Melcher for a recording contract, but after witnessing some of Manson's questionable social behaviors, Melcher lost interest in the project and cut ties with Manson completely. Terry Melcher and his girlfriend Candace Bergen soon moved out of the house at 10,050 Cielo Drive, and it was leased to film director Roman Polanski and his wife Sharon Tate. After members of the Manson family murdered five people at this house on August 8, 1969, many believed that Manson was targeting Terry Melcher directly. And although evidence points to Charles Manson being fully aware that Terry Melcher no longer lived at 10,050 Cielo Drive, Melcher was extremely scared, going so far as hiring bodyguards for himself and for his mother, Doris Day. So between the car crash as a child, the string of horrible husbands, and her proximity to the most gruesome murders of the 20th century, no one can truly say the events in Doris Day's life were those of the girl next door. It was because of her musical talent that Doris Day was able to bring a freshness to a 25-year-old lyric and really sell audiences on the idealism and the intimate romance of Tea for Two. I want you to hear something, a very beautiful song. It was written by a brilliant young composer, Uncle Max, a friend of mine. Picture me upon your knee With tea for two and two for tea Just me for you and you for me alone Nobody near us to see us or hear us No friends or relations on weekend vacations We won't have it known that we own the telephone Day will break and I'll awake And start to bake a sugar cake For you to take For all the boys to see Doris Day certainly captures the dreamy sensibility of T for Two, but there was another vocalist making her own ascent in the music industry around that time, and she saw that so much more could be done with this song. Anita O'Day was first seen performing in public when she was a teenager, but she wasn't singing, and her name wasn't yet Anita O'Day. In 1933, a girl named Anita Colton started entering dance contests of the most demanding kind. These were 24-hour dance-till-you-drop competitions, the kind that Horace McCoy would go on to write about in his novel, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? The contests were grueling, but Anita couldn't resist the prize money awarded to the final dancers left out on the floor. She so intently had her eyes on this prize that she changed her last name to O'Day, which is Pig Latin for dough, 
what she hoped she would win. Anita O'Day learned a lot from the dance-a-thons. She learned persistence and what it feels like to want to give up but know that you can't. The organizers occasionally let her sing, and she began to learn how to work a crowd. At 16, she got a job working as a dancer in a chorus line, and at 19, she was singing at Chicago's new offbeat club. The club band wasn't available for many rehearsals, so Anita took this opportunity to develop her skills of improvisation. She also realized very early on that her voice lacked something that so many other vocalists came by naturally. She did not have the ability to hold out a single note for very long, or to give the notes she could hold out any natural vibrato that beautiful, shaky, quivering sound that singers give to long-held notes. Anita O'Day found that her voice just wouldn't produce what she called hold tones, and as she relates in an interview she gave near the end of her life, it all came down to a botched surgery from when she was a child. Anyone would ask me, I'd have to say, it's that little thing that hangs down that goes, ah, 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 and I don't have that. My mother said, you're going to have your tonsils taken out. Well... Okay, I figured they they put you back under or something, and it's not going to hurt. But the slip of the wrist, it came as a letter to my mother saying, Dear Mrs. Colton, we are so sorry. With the slip of the knife, your daughter has no uvula. They cut the uvula off. When you go to sing, it's very important. You know, you need that. And that's why I sing eighth notes so you know, I didn't have to use it. Mm. No, I got away. I'm still getting away with it. Don't tell everybody. <laughs> so, Anita O'Day, the new vocalist for Chicago's offbeat club, had no uvula. Any vibrato she was able to manage was often brought about by shaking her head as she sang. But Anita made it work. And between her off-the-cuff riffing and her voice that quickly jumped from one note to the next, because it had to, her performances at the Chicago Club were noticed by drummer and bandleader Gene Krupa. And in 1941, when a spot for a lead vocalist came open in his big band, Krupa asked Anita O'Day to permanently join. Also joining the band around this time was trumpet player Roy Eldridge, one of the first black musicians to join an otherwise all-white big band. Roy Eldridge and Anita O'Day began 1942 with a novelty hit called Let Me Off Uptown, in which they trade vocal lines back and forth. Hey, Joe. What do you mean, Joe? My name's Roy. Well, come here, Roy, and get groovy. You been uptown? No, I ain't been uptown, but I've been around. You mean to say you ain't been uptown? No, I ain't been uptown. What's uptown? If it's pleasure you're about, and you feel like stepping out, oh, you've got to shout it, let me off uptown. The record was quite scandalous for the time due to the suggested sexual interplay between a white woman and a black man. Let me off Anita, oh Anita, say I feel something. What you feel, Roy? The heat? No, it must be that uptown rhythm. I feel like blowing. Well, blow, Roy, blow. As Anita O'Day's star continued to rise and her big band career progressed, something happened to her. She began to get bored. For her very first club appearances, she had been forced to improvise. But it wasn't long before this on-the-spot riffing became second nature, often costing her a job. 
Before joining Jean Krupa's band, she had auditioned for Benny Goodman. But Goodman rejected her because, in her audition, she strayed too far from the melody. But now that she was an established singer, improvising was the only thing that was going to keep her sane. Due to this driving need to keep things fresh, Anita left Jean Krupa's band in 1946 and struck out on her own. Now she was in control and could make sure she was performing the songs she wanted to the way she wanted to sing them, no matter how much her performance varied from night to night. She explained her need to keep things fresh when she talked to Tom Snyder on The Tomorrow Show in January of 1980. If you had not been a jazz singer, but rather just a pure pop singer... I'd have never made it this long. Do you really not believe so? No, pop singing is very... Very hard, difficult. Even big band singing is difficult because it's pattern work. With the small group, there is no lead going on. So I got a chance to make the lead. I got a chance to make the fills. So I'm busy. I'm making my design. And that's the work. Uh, I never make a Broadway show unless it was about a true authentic jazz singer that got up every night and sang the same song but a different version. That's what gets me to work. Early in her career, people would tell Anita that she sounded great, just like Billie Holiday. While certainly a compliment, Anita wanted to stand out on her own. So she stopped listening to other singers and started really paying attention to jazz instrumentalists and the techniques they used. She began treating her own voice like a jazz instrument, blurting out phrases, scatting here and there, creating her own melodies from the melodies the composer had written. B.G. Adair sees that this voice-as-instrument approach helped Anita take what could be an ordinary song to a new level. She takes it to the nth degree, I think, in, in doing the scat courses that she does. To me, she is like a maybe a trumpet player or a clarinet player. She's very uh, musical, of course, but she can also tell you where she is in the song, you know, and she can lead the band. She has such a great amount of courage, for one thing, and another is that she's extremely talented in the rhythm section part. She can count the tune off, which a lot of singers can't do. And uh, she can run the band, tell the drummer what to do, and when to do it, and all that kind of stuff. She's, she's like her own band. Another technique Anita O'Day employed to keep things fresh for each performance, she would take a song that an audience was used to hearing at a moderate tempo, and then she would speed it up. Take the Rodgers and Hart song, Have You Met Miss Jones? Here it is, leisurely and languid, performed by Ella Fitzgerald. And all at once I lost my breath And all at once was scared to death And all at once I owned the earth But in the hands of Anita O'Day, it's a very different song. All at once I lost my breath, all at once, was scared to death, all at once. I felt the earth and sky, tell you while I laugh, Mr. Jones, and we'll keep on meeting till we die, Mr. Jones and who, Mr. Jones and Another example is the Dorothy Fields and Jerome Kern standard, The Way You Look Tonight. For the sake of comparison, let's hear it performed by Ella Fitzgerald. So-
dreamy and romantic. Anita O'Day had other ideas. Someday when I'm awfully low and the world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of you, just the way you look tonight. B.G. Adair says this need for speed is one of Anita O'Day's biggest strengths. You really have to get on your toes, and, and she was good at that. And it takes a great deal of, of practice and learning to get to the point that she did with these things. Because some of the things that I've heard her do are just insanely fast. And she always knows where she is, and she always is with the rhythm section. Most of us are limping around in the lower part of this song sometimes. When it came to T for Two, Anita chose a song she had first recorded in her Gene Krupa days. Picture me up on your knee with T for two, two for T. Can't you see how happy we're gonna be? But instead of this mid-tempo swing that she had given it in 1946, she surprised everyone by scatting and skittering through the song in double time. She knew she could take this ode to romance and domesticity and do something wild with it. Except I think she enjoyed the challenge of uh, tempos like that because usually you don't hear singers do it, you hear instrumentalists do it. You have to be a very skillful singer to keep up with the band and she was always right on the money. They could do several courses without her and she would come right back in at the exact moment that she should. It's, it's just a, a gift, I think, especially she was sort of the queen of that stuff. Her performances around this time never failed to grab an audience's attention. And this reimagined version of T for Two came at the perfect time to enhance Anita O'Day's national presence. She was invited to perform at the 1958 Newport Jazz Festival, a four-day event beginning Thursday, July 3rd through Sunday, July 6th. The Newport Jazz Festival was started a few years earlier by New England socialite Elaine Lorillard, a jazz enthusiast who dreamt of recreating the feel of an underground jazz club in an outdoor setting. The first festival in 1954 was held in the Newport Casino area of Newport, Rhode Island. Not a gambling casino at all, but actually a complex of shops and tennis courts. But many residents of the upper-class area opposed the festival, either not hip to the jazz sounds or harboring racist tendencies, or perhaps both. So by 1958, the festival had moved to the lawn of Freebody Park, a sports arena near the Newport Casino complex. One of the attendees for the 1958 festival was Bert Stern, a commercial photographer who, a few years later, would photograph Marilyn Monroe for Vogue, only one month before she died in August 1962. But on these days in early July, Bert Stern had a film camera with him, intent on capturing not only the musical acts, but also the crowd watching. From Anita O'Day's festival set, two songs were chosen for her portion of what would become Bert Stern's concert film, Jazz on a Summer's Day 
the jazz standard Sweet Georgia Brown, and the now extremely fast Tea for Two. Nobody there is see a serious friend three days. We can have a case, won't have it. No, we own a telephone, dear. Down the rag and you were working in the back of sugar gang. You detect the call for what you see. We raise a family boy for you, girl, for me. Can't you see how happy we can be? We three. Need to make up on your neighbor. Two for two and two for two. Now can't you see how happy we can be? Nobody there is see a serious friend three days. We can have a case, won't have it. No, we own a telephone, dear. Down the rag and you work me. The Mr. Jones she calls to is Jimmy Jones on piano. Also performing with her that day, John Poole on drums and Whitey Mitchell on bass. And although the film is called Jazz on a Summer's Day, it was understood that the jazz heavyweights, the acts at the festival that were not to be missed, would perform at night, after the sun went down. So she was not thrilled when the festival organizer told Anita her time slot, Sunday afternoon at 5 o'clock. But always one step ahead, she knew that with the 5 o'clock sun shining brightly onto the stage, her look and fashion choice would be that much more important, as she elaborated on NPR in 1987. And I said, what night am I on? Because it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights. And he says to me, oh, you're on Sunday afternoon. And I said, oh, thanks a lot. You know, what am I going to wear on a Sunday afternoon? I'm not going to wear a frock to the floor. And I'm not going to wear it off the shoulder. So I got to thinking. So I lied prone. And I kind of like thought, what would you wear? I was due at 5 o'clock. So I wore a cocktail afternoon cocktail party dress with the uh, black sheets and the white peplum and little glass slippers and the little white gloves and this black hat with the ostrich feathers. And that worked out apropos for the time o' day. <laughs> That's a joke. Her appearance at the 1958 Newport Jazz Festival was a game changer for her public image. Time magazine did a feature on the festival focusing primarily on Anita. Yeah, that was the biggest thing that happened to me in my life. You know, that was the big event. There were 150 musicians at this event. And out of all those people, male and female, and there was my picture in the Time magazine, and nobody else was mentioned. And everybody you could name was in that show. But despite the development of her own improvisational style that made each performance an exciting tightrope act, despite the fact that she turned a lame festival time slot into an appearance in Time magazine, what is often most remembered about Anita O'Day is that for more than 15 years, she was hooked on heroin. Introduced to the drug in the early 1950s by her drummer, John Poole, Anita recorded a large part of her output while high. Later in her life, after she was clean from drugs for many years, she made a number of television talk show appearances to promote her upcoming concerts, and without a doubt, the interview would always get around to the drugs. Tom Snyder asked her. How could you ever get involved with all that junk? How could you? Yeah. Uh, curiosity killed a cat, right? <laughs> was it just curiosity? Of course. Was there a lot of it around, Anita? Right. It was a thing in California. You know, I guess it was a thing in New York, too. It was. I, you know, as you travel, yeah, it was Chicago, always there. Yeah, in Chicago It's like certain peoples, and they just kind of hang out, and when whatever town you're in, they come around. So it's very hard to quit. You say, I'm going to quit, you know, and then you're... It's a, a group of people. They're just all, that's what they do in life. Dick Cavett asked her. Could you work while on the hard stuff? 
you really are not aware. It's an anesthetic, you know. You're really mm -hmm. not aware of uh, if you're working or not. Like Billy no. at the end, they used to just lead her to the bandstand and push her up on the stand, you know. An and instinct just, took over yeah, for us. Yeah, more or less, right. Yeah. Well, but I got down to about 101 pounds, and so I just literally ran out of energy. Yeah. Yeah. In 1966, it seemed she really did run out of energy. She was almost out of time. She overdosed, and her heart stopped. You were once pronounced legally dead. Oh, What's that yeah. All about? Well, um, <laughs> when you take a uh, when you arrive DOA mm -hmm. and they put the sheet over you, that's legally dead. That's close. You more like or to less, come. yeah. What had happened? And then some. Do I had a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> and then some doctor comes running in and says, "Wait a minute, let's try this new contraption or something." Mm -hmm. And there you, they throw the sheet off you, and you come to, and the, this thing is down in here, bringing back your breathing and your on your feet. Now they think you've had a heart attack, see? Yeah. So when everybody leaves the room, you like kind of get up like this, grab your clothes and start to leave. And the nurse comes screaming and, wait a minute, you've had a heart attack, lay down in bed, you know. In reality, it was just an OD at that time. It was an OD. Yeah. Just as Dick Cavett was curious, everyone seemed to be fascinated that the performances that were so astounding, so out of the ordinary, they happened while Anita O'Day was high on heroin. I was on 60 Minutes, and uh, Harry Reasoner asked me the same thing. He says, that day when you were on jazz on a summer's day, and you were out there in that big picture hat, and the breeze was blowing those real ostrich feathers on top of it, he says to me, were you high? And I looked at him, and I looked back at the little film they were showing me, and I says, I would say yes. <laughs> her near-death experience woke her up, and more than anything, she knew she needed a change of scenery. I went to Hawaii, and uh, I didn't know anybody in Hawaii. And when you get the chills, I just laid in the hot sun. And when you get the sweats, I jumped in the water. I did it for five months, cool, cold, and straight ever since. Her plan to kick the habit worked. Anita O'Day would go on to live for 40 more years until November 23, 2006, when recovering from pneumonia, she died in her sleep. We've seen how both Anita O'Day and Doris Day are mostly remembered for events in their personal lives rather than for their sheer talent and the hard work they put in to create their very own mode of distinct and successful artistic expression. I will end this episode with a performance of Tea for Two from a third woman who should be better known for her musical talents but is instead known best for the way in which she lived the last years of her life. Most know her as the woman who lived with her eccentric daughter for 25 years in an East Hampton mansion. Eventually full of raccoons and cat urine, the walls crumbling around them, depicted in almost real time in the 1975 documentary Grey Gardens, made by the brothers Albert and David Mazels. Her name is Edith Ewing Bouvier Beale, known to most as Big Edie. While her complete story is far too complex and fascinating to simply tack on to the end of this episode, if you've not seen it, I encourage you to watch the documentary Grey Gardens as soon as you can. Both Big Edie and her daughter Little Edie are an absolute delight. All her life, Big Edie dreamed of being a famous singer, and in the 1940s, when friends still visited her home regularly, she would often give recitals. One of her favorite songs to sing was Tea for Two. In the 1975 documentary, at 80 years old, Big Edie sits in her bed, 
her floppy, striped, big-brimmed hat upon her head, and she performs the song with every bit of drama and flair as she surely did for a large audience when she was much younger. But now, the Maisel's film camera in her face, she performs it for you. See us or hear us, new friends or relation, on weekend vacation. They won't have it known, dear, that we own a telephone. No, 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 but I'll awake and start to bake a shuk shuk sugar cake, cake, cake. See for all the birds to see. Let's Face the Music is brought to you by We Own This Town. Find out more at letsfacethemusic.show. Our theme music is performed by Ella Fitzgerald and Nelson Riddle and written by Irving Berlin. Thank you to B.G. Adair for taking the time to share her insights on this music, and thank you for listening. (laughs) 